Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. It's at the end of my quarter, meaning the end of my term at the university. And I have a couple weeks where I get a little bit of extra time, and I thought I would spend that time answering your email questions. So let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is from patron Junie. Patron Junie writes uh, that uh, wants me to talk about dreams and lucid dreaming. Uh, she says, I can't remember a night when I haven't dreamt, and my whole life – I've generally had multiple dreams a night. With so many dreams being part of my life, I've learned to occasionally control my dreams to an extent and can sort of enter my dreams and have this part of me that is conscious during them, if that makes sense. I'm interested in general dream theory and research. Why do we have dreams? What about dream meanings, recurring dreams, and common dream themes? Well, good question, patron Juni. Um, so just a little bit on lucid dreaming. I feel like most people know what that is, as you do. It's the ability to uh, you know, know that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. And there's techniques in terms of training yourself. Some people just naturally do this, but some people can actually train themselves to uh, learn their dreaming. Like one of the things – there's various different techniques, but one of the te- techniques you can do is to um, walk up – in your waking life – Walk up to a wall and try to put your hand through the wall or walk up to a light switch and turn it on. Or another one is grab a book off the shelf and try to read it. So the idea is is that if you habitually do this in your waking life, eventually in your dreaming life, you will start to habitually do it as well because it just becomes a pattern of your behavior. And the thing about dreams is that Often, for most people, if you actually try to put your hand through a wall while you're dreaming, you can do it. Or when you try to flip on a light when you're dreaming, it actually won't work. Or when you try to read a book, you will find that you can't read the book. And a lot of people kind of freak out about that. They're just like, what? You mean you can't read a book when you're dreaming? Well, to me, it's, it's, it's fairly simple in that you are the one creating the book. So how could you possibly create, you know, a a couple hundred words of text all at once and then proceed to print it onto your visual cortex, you know, in your dream and then read it? Uh, Your brain isn't that good. You can't you can't create that many words at once. So as your brain is trying to read a book, it can't actually produce the words to, in fact, read. Um, And also when you turn on a light switch. In your dream, uh, light doesn't necessarily exist in a dream. You're, you're, you just sort of know things are happening, if that makes any sense. Uh, the other thing is, is you in your dream, you can put your hands through a wall because the wall, of course, doesn't exist. And so there's, there's various other ways you can do. And again, you do it while you're waking, and eventually you start doing it while you're dreaming. And then you go, okay, I'm going to put my hand through a wall. I know I'm not dreaming right now, and you know this is what you're in your dream. And you, you put your hand up to the wall, and your hand goes through. And all of a sudden, you're like, holy shit, I'm dreaming. And then there's various different uh, levels of being able to control one's dream. Uh, some people, even though they know, know they're dreaming, they can't control it. And then some people have full control. Every once in a while, I will lucid dream and I'll have control over what the dream is doing. I, I, I would say I have like 50% control. 
Um, but I'm also kind of I'm sleeping, so I I, I don't know how um, straight my mind is at the time, <laughs> and so even my efforts, you know, to control my dream aren't very coherent because I'm like, well, how you know, because I'm still in the dream. Like I remember one time I was walking. And I was dreaming and I was under this bridge and I was with people and we were socializing or something. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm dreaming. And I flew up to the bridge and I like hung out in the rafters of the bridge. And when I look back on that, it's just like that's all I did with my lucid dream powers was to hang out in the rafters. <laughs> like seems like I'd want to do so many other things, you know. But anyway, so that's lucid dreaming. And, um, you know, it can be fun. And, uh, it, you know, it's just one of those things that some people like to do. Uh, I've never been interested in lucid dreaming myself. I, it, it doesn't really, I don't know. I, I figure it's why mess with the natural process of dreaming. It's like if my, if my dream needs to be that the way that it is. Now, having said that, I'm sort of privileged in the fact that I don't really have a lot of nightmares. In fact, I, I very rarely will have a nightmare. And so, um, I guess I, you know, I'm, lucky in that I don't really need to control my dreams. Anyway, so getting to your uh, question, Pedro Judy, you know, why do we dream? Well, the fact is, we don't know why we dream. Uh, we don't even know why we sleep. We don't even know why we, you know, like to wear red clothes as opposed to purple clothes or something. Like, we really just don't know. We can hypothesize, we can speculate, we can uh, begin to zero in on some semblance of a scientific answer to that question. But we don't really know. The uh, it's sort of a weird. It's always sort of weirded me out that we sleep because a lot of animals will sleep, right? But it just seems to be like such a bad evolutionary uh, uh, function, right? Like to me, just getting at a at another basic level. Say you take because um, uh, you know other mammals will sleep too. So say you take mice and you have two different groups of mice. One group of mice, they will, uh, they've evolved the need to sleep. And, you know, sleep seems to be restorative to both our bodies, our immune system, our nervous system. We seem to need it to um, repair the body and repair the nervous system in particular. Um, which, you know, seems like, okay, well, that's why we evolved it. But, you know, we evolved a lot of things that um, help us, right? And it seems like we would have you know, life would have figured out a way to have a restorative function because we can restore our bodies while we're awake too. It's not like we only restore our bodies while we're sleeping. It just, it's just that sleeping seems to be a time when we're particularly restorative and, uh, but we're unconscious. <laughs> it just seems like such a bad, it, we're unconscious for a third of our lives. <clears throat> it just seems like a like a very strange evolutionary thing. And, you know, it, it seems to be something that uh, we couldn't evolve away from to find another way of doing it because it seems like uh, some ancestor of ours would have figured that out long ago before we even emerged from the ocean and onto the land. But anyway, so the fact is we don't really know why we sleep. We don't know why we evolved to sleep and why so many other animals have. Um, and we, we particularly don't know why we dream. Again, it seems like sleep and dreaming is restorative. It seems like dreaming might have something to do with helping us remember things and also with problem solving. But again, it's not inherent. It's not like you absolutely need to dream. Um, now, 
what we can say is that if you don't dream and if you don't sleep, then things start to fall apart. Uh, your body starts to fall apart, your health starts to fall apart, and your brain and your cognitive abilities and your memory and your emotional regulation, all those things start to fall asleep. Some people even start hallucinating. Uh, but again, we, we don't really know why. A study found that about a third people will report dreaming less than once a month. A third will report dreaming one to one to ten one to nine times a month, and a th- another third will report ten or more times per month. So, to be clear, uh, most people are dreaming every night multiple times, but some people don't remember any of their dreams. You know, I'll talk to people and they'll be like, "Oh, I don't dream," and I'm like, "Well, you do dream. You just don't remember any of them." They're like, "Really? Yeah." It's like, "Yeah. If you didn't dream, something would you, you'd be you'd be in a bad." place. (laughs) Uh, You just don't remember any of your dreams. I I would venture to say that the vast majority of dreams go unremembered by most people. Even if you remember like two or three of your dreams, it's probable that you had a lot of dreams uh, during the night. So it's just kind of interesting to think, right, about we enter sleep and our brain concocts all of these uh, narratives and stories and adventures. And then we wake up and press the reset button, forget the whole thing. Um, so dream meanings, you know, what, what do dreams mean? Well, don't read the books. Don't read online. All those things are bullshit. Uh, there's no way to, to know what dreams mean. A lot of people have looked into it, but you know, it's really hard to figure out, um, what it is. It's sort of be like saying, you know, um, well, I won't go into that, but anyway, the point is, is that it dream meanings are really hard to determine, uh, it's totally personal. Having said that, I've absolutely done dream interpretation with my clients, and I find that it can, for many clients, can be very, very helpful for them. Now, can I scientifically demonstrate or know that the dream analysis is quote-unquote accurate? No, I'll never know that. But it seems to be helpful. Like someone will be uh, in a situation with their marriage, and they'll have a dream about a past part, you know, romantic partner. And they start talking about the dream and will, you know, the way dream analysis works is I just ask them to keep talking about their dream. And oftentimes as they talk about the dream, they remember more details. And then I will ask them, okay, why do you think you had that dream? What does that thing mean to you? You know, you were on a boat. What is, what kind of boat was it? What do you think of when you think of a boat like that? Because in essence, I'm like trying to figure out the landscape of their own dream symbols. And also the current emotional sort of mode that they're in or the emotional issue that they are, that their unconscious has been struggling with for a while that might be cropping up in the dream. Uh, can I, can I know that it's, that's why it's happening? No, uh, it's, uh, you could claim it's absolutely pseudoscience, but it, 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 it produces meaning. I mean, so, so let's say the dreams have no meaning at all and are not connected to one's life at all. Well, analyzing dreams, it, it's sort of like if I ask someone, okay, p- take these uh, pens and just scribble something on a piece of paper. And then we look at the scribbles and we say, you know, what do you think of when you think of the scribble? And they're like, oh, this reminds me of my ex-wife. Well, it's the, the scribbles don't mean anything, but but the scribbles provide a 
a backdrop to which the client can project things onto. And so it's possible that dream recall is just that, that the client remembers a dream and it's totally meaningless. And then the client, you know, it gives the client an excuse to say what's on their mind, which is like, well, this has been on my mind and maybe it has to do with that. And then, then that's where the therapy begins. It doesn't uh, begin with the analysis. It begins with what the analysis sort of uh, creates in terms of discovery and, and contemplation after that. Plus, it's meaningful. You know, if, if you're, say, missing your grandmother who died five years ago and you had a dream about her, having uh, talking about the dream and interpreting the dream with your grandmother can feel healing and can produce just a tremendous amount of meaning in, in people's lives. You know, I have a friend who uh, her grandfather died not too long ago, and she dreamt that her grandfather walked up to her in a dream and, and said that he was okay. And and this was a big deal to her. This this felt like a major milestone in her grieving process. And, you know, maybe the dream was meaningless. I don't know. But uh, it certainly meant something to her, and it was very therapeutic for her to talk about. Uh, now, common themes that you'll hear people talk about, and this certainly isn't exhaustive, but just things I can think of off the top of my head in terms of the clients I've worked with, are... Uh, one, people can have trauma dreams, nightmare dreams. You know, someone's trying to kill you or someone does kill you or someone cuts you open or someone kills everyone in your family in front of your eyes or something. You know, these are nightmares. These are uh, what I would consider to be sort of trauma dreams. And a lot of times people who have dreams like this have been through traumatic events and their brain is trying to work it out. That's sort of the one of the common hypotheses around dreams is that our, our dreams are an effort for our uh, our brains to try to, 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 to sort of try to figure things out and or express. It's, it's, I usually think of it in two ways. Or, well, really. Well, I, so I think of it in a lot of ways. <laughs> Maybe I should lay it all the ways. In the most fundamental ways, I think of dreams as being completely meaningless. Some dream Some dreams seem to be just complete random static of the brain. Another function of dreams seems to be a method of memory consolidation. Uh, you're transferring uh, memory from your short-term memory to your long-term memory. Uh, and another function of dreams seems to be a, an expression of your current emotional state. Like you are worrying about work the next day. And so you have an anxiety dream. And in this dream, you can't find your phone. So this is a dream that's expressing an emotion that you sort of went to sleep having or something that was sort of uh, buzzing in the background. Another function of dreams seems to be wish fulfillment, uh, like you have a you feel powerless. And so you want to feel powerful. And so in your dream, your dream gives you this power. It, it's perhaps the, the unconscious is trying to help the ego to cope by saying, OK, ego, I sense that you feel powerless. I'm going to let you feel powerful in this dream so that you can balance yourself out. People have shame dreams, like uh, being naked in public, or they have horny dreams, like they're having sex with people, or they'll have lonely dreams, like being rejected by other people, or the wish fulfillment side of that, where they're actually socializing with other people. So, you know, those are just the themes I'm, I can think of. Talking a little about the stages of, of sleep, stage one, you're barely sleeping, you're easily woken up, and this is just like the first five or ten minutes well, you know, when you f first, you know, fall asleep. 
Stage two is light sleep. Uh, your, your heart rate begins to slow down. Your body tra- temperature drops a little bit. And uh, you're still able to be woken up fairly easily, but not as easily as stage one. Stage three is, uh, we used to have stage four, but we got rid of it. So stage three is basically deep sleep. And this is where it's really hard to wake you up. And if you get woken up during stage three, you feel disoriented. You feel disoriented. And during this stage is when you're getting all the real good benefits of sleeping. Your body is repairing. You're building bone and muscle. Your immune system is being bolstered. Now, incidentally, you can dream during any stage of sleep. And, and I've experienced this. I'm a napper. And so um, there are some times when I nap in between clients. I will be, you know, I have 50-minute sessions, so... Um, I'll have, say, seven minutes in between clients, and I'll lay down on my couch and sleep for like three minutes. I'll set my alarm three minutes because there's sometimes when, it, when I, I just need three minutes to turn off my brain. I sleep for three minutes, and I feel you know, better. I'm not, it's not amazing, but I feel better. And sometimes I'll sleep during the I'll, – I'll dream during those three minutes. Um, so anyway, you can dream during any, any stage. Uh, and then we have REM sleep. And this is about 90 minutes after you fall asleep. So it takes about 90 minutes to go from stage one, two, and three into REM sleep. And REM sleep is rapid eye movement sleep. And this is uh, the, the first REM sleep cycle that we go into lasts about, lasts about 10 minutes. And each, each successive one you have usually tends to be longer. So 15 minutes, half an hour. And you can have REM sleep up to an hour. This is why we need lots of sleep because uh, the cycle, you know, a lot of people will say like, well, you know, I can get by with four hours. It's like, okay, if the natural state of sleeping is, is about eight hours and you know that, how many cycles is that? Something like that's like six cycles or five to five cycles. Well, it's that deep sleep that you really get the benefits of sleeping. And so if you're cutting off a, you know, a few cycles of deep sleep, that can't be good for you, right? Another thing uh, to, to make sure you try to do is sleep consistently, meaning that whatever time you sleep, whether it's seven, eight, or nine hours, make sure you sleep the same amount every night because your body will actually figure out uh, what you're doing, the body has, is just amazing to adapt. And so let's say you say, okay, I'm going to sleep for seven and a half hours every night. I'm going to go to bed eight hours before I want to wake up. It takes me about a half an hour to fall asleep. I'll be asleep for seven and a half hours. Uh, your body will figure out how to uh, cycle, your, usually, not always, obviously, but, you're, but if you do it consistently for a couple weeks, your body will figure out how to go into your different stages and make them fit so that you actually will naturally wake up after seven and a half hours. This is why a lot of people will just wake up right before their alarm goes off because your body knows uh, how to regulate your cycles through the night because if, if you sleep, if you fall asleep and wake up at the same time every day. Um, and this is why if you ever wake up uh, and your alarm goes off and you're just like, you cannot get out of bed and you're disoriented, you're just like, oh, I feel so bad. It's probably because your alarm went off in the middle of deep sleep. And, it, and that's probably because you're not having a consistent night of sleep every night and your body doesn't know how to regulate your cycles. And your body is just like, uh, well, I'd, I have no idea when he's going to wake up tomorrow, so I'll just try to do this. And then, boom, you know, you get woken up during deep sleep. So you, you want to try to avoid that. Um, 
But again, so, so REM sleep is where we do a lot of our dreaming. Our body is paralyzed, actually, during this phase so that we don't actually act. It's a good thing we're paralyzed that, you know, so we don't actually act out our dreams. The paralyzation can become a problem sometimes for some somnambulisms in that some people will wake up, actually become conscious while their body is still paralyzed, which is frightening. That's never happened to me. I hope it never happens to me. That sounds awful. But um, I've had other somnambulisms. I've you know, I, I've woken up in the middle of the night and hallucinated full, full on dreams, just sort of totally imposed on reality. I'll be walking around the house and I'll be seeing things. It's, it's awful. Uh, I've slept walk. I've punched my own one time. This is, I don't know, four years ago. I was sleeping on my stomach and I was getting into a fight. I was going to, I was going to start pummeling this. I was in a mall and this guy came up to me and I, he was getting in my face and I, I was, I was going to punch him in the face a few times. And I pushed, I did sort of a one-handed push-up with my left hand, and I punched my own hand with my right hand. So, so just imagine, put your hand up against, like, the wall, and without holding back at all, punch your own, punch the back of your own hand as hard as you can. That's what I did. I'm not joking. 18 months, my hand hurt. I punched my hand, my, my own hand, so hard that 18 months later, I could still feel the pain when I sort of moved my hand in a certain way. By now, it's okay. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it runs in the family. It's, uh, you know, her, uh, you can sort of get it genetically. My dad actually has this too. According to my mom, he, you know, my dad kicks and punches. So I get it from him. Another thing is that when you don't get regular and good sleep, uh, it tends to create these sort of sleepwalking, punching problems while sleeping. Um, and you can also have serotonin problems too that can result in it anyway. So uh, if you wake people up during REM sleep, uh, people often remember their dreams right away. So, you know, when, one of the things that um, happens for people is that they don't remember their dreams because they're, they're actually not waking up during their deep sleep stages, which is the most likely to be dreaming at that moment. Um, but like I said, you could be dreaming dur- during any moment. Uh, babies spend almost half of their sleep dr- in REM sleep, actually, and about for adults, it's about twenty percent of our of our sleeping time. So, if you're an adult, which I guess uh, you you probably are, <laughs> uh, while you're sleeping, about twenty percent of the time you're doing rapid eye movement, which probably means I don't know ten to thirty percent of your sleep time uh, you're dreaming. It's hard hard to know. That the reason why we don't know is because we can't tell if someone's dreaming by looking at them. The only way we know they're dreaming is if we ask them if they were dreaming. And the only way we can really know is, is if we wake them up while they're dreaming and ask them, were you just dreaming? Because people can generally remember if they were just dreaming or if, or well, so that's the other thing. It's like, so we wake people up in the, in the lab and we say, were you dreaming? And they're like, Yes. And we're like, were, were you just dreaming right now or were you dreaming, say, a while ago? Well, how do we know that they know the answer to that question? You know, what if they were dreaming an hour ago and you wake them up an hour later and it feels like they just started dreaming, right? Like there'd be no way to know the answer. We just don't know. And so there's dreaming is this huge, weird thing. Uh, you know, some people you'll wake up in the middle of REM sleep, which 80% of people will, will say they're dreaming. You know, you wake people up in the middle of REM, 80% people say, yep, I'm dreaming. 
some people you wake them up and they say they're not dreaming. And the thing is, is like, how do we know they weren't dreaming? <laughs> Maybe they were dreaming. And when you wake them up, they just don't remember because their brains just don't work that way. So, you know, dreaming and sleep, it's just a, it's just a mystery. <laughs> we just, we just don't know. And I find that to be so interesting that in a time when we can send probes out of the solar system and we can see planets in other galaxies now, uh, we have no idea why we dream. <laughs> it's just like we're, we're, we're like the ancient Greeks uh, staring at ourselves in, in a pool of water. All right, let's take a break. And when we get back from the break, I will continue reading your emails. All right, we're back from the break. I want to give a shout out to our uh, most deserving level uh, patrons, Serenity, Chris, and Lorelai. Thank you so much for being the top level tier on Patreon. And then the next level, we got Erica Lurie, who I met at the 11th anniversary show, John, Jill, Maya, Danielle, Sally, Cindy, and Kirsten, all people that I feel like I know pretty well. And then the next tier, we got Emily, good old Emily, and Phil, and Charles, and Jessamy, who I know really well, and Tara, who I believe is going to be on the podcast soon. Um, and then we got our next level, and we got Marianne, Sarah, Jill, my coworker, Jill, uh, Trish, Robert, Aaron, Adam, TR, uh, Tara, Clover, Kathy, Christina, Melanie, Dennis, Stephanie, uh, Shirnaz, Jennings, Natasha, good old Natasha, Joseph, Akemi, Hallie, good old Hallie, Noah, Lauren, uh, another Natasha, Annette, Kristen, Richard, OS, Natasha, Natasha, you have two, you have two uh, accounts. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, another Lorelai, Kimber, John, Kelly, Colleen, Terrence, Amy, Basil, Slade, Agena, and Jared, Susan, and Zach. So thank you all for being a patron. Uh, patron Hallie actually wrote in and said, uh, finally got to listen to your schema therapy episode, which was great. Uh, but now all I want is an episode from you called willpower is not a thing. Ha ha. Uh, but seriously. Yeah. So, you know, maybe I'll do a full episode on willpower at some point, but just uh, a little, little riff on willpower. We, in the United States, maybe in particular, I don't know, maybe it's around the world. We have this notion that our problems can be solved by willpower. Like a very common thing is I want to lose weight and I need to, uh, uh, and a lot of times people will say, okay, I just need to buckle down and lose the weight. Or they want to start working out and they'll say, I just need to, I just need to get the willpower to work out more. Or they will want to get more things done. They want to clean their house more. They want to organize. They'll be like, I need to have the willpower to do that. And to some extent, it's true that you need some willpower. But if I was to put it on a percentage, I would say it's probably like 3% willpower, These, especially things that require long-term uh, activities. So, But let's just, stay, let's just take something fairly simple. Like uh, I want to... Uh, have a more organized house. I want to have a cleaner house, one that I just want to have a cleaner house. Okay. So a lot of times people will be like, well, I just need to start cleaning more. 
I just need to clean my house more. And that's sort of where it ends. And that can motivate them kind of for a couple of days, but then they slowly drift back to their original pattern of not cleaning their house. Okay, so this often doesn't work. Most people can attest to that. Occasionally it does, but usually it doesn't. So the trick is, is the, the willpower is great, but the willpower should be the willpower not to do the thing, but, a, but willpower to create a system and to, to uh, create a lifestyle. So one thing that you could do if you just were you really trying to be more organized is you want to tell yourself, I want to eventually be organized in a consistent way. So that's a different kind of goal, right? It's not saying, I want to be organized now. It's saying, I want to eventually be organized in a consistent way, in a reasonably consistent way. So right away, you're saying, I, I'm, I, I'm not putting my goals super high, and I, I'm going to take some time with this. And then, and then you want to say, okay, what's, what, are my, what are the steps to me getting this done? Well, a lot of times, again, people just say, well, I just got to do it. Well, Again, willpower doesn't usually work. So what can you do? Okay, well, one thing you can do is you can scan your house and really try to figure out what would help you to be more organized in a consistent manner. So you might look around your house. You might be like, okay, well, I don't really have a place to put the remote controls. What if I had a little bowl or a tray where the remote controls went? Okay. And then what if I gave everyone in my family a, you know, pizza party <laughs> if they did it for a week where they put the remote controls in the tray? And I tell myself that for a couple months, it's probably not going to work, but maybe event, but if I stick to it, uh, and that's the willpower sticking with, with the system, eventually that family will be in the habit of putting the remote controls on the tray. Um, how how do I organize my life so that I actually have time to organize my house? Do I need to cut back at work a little bit? Do I need to get other people to do things for me, like the, my other family, family members? Um, you know, all these, you know, you start thinking, okay, what's the system here? So instead of willpower, people should be sitting down and making a plan. And sometimes that takes willpower, I suppose, but it shouldn't be that hard, right? It's not, it's not arduous work. It's like, okay, here's, here's my system. Now, part of the plan should be every few weeks, I'm going to look at this plan and see if I need to change it. I'll, and I'll just take 30 seconds, 30 seconds to look at the plan and uh, change it. While we're on this tip <laughs> uh, space, I'll say that uh, one of the things that I do is I actually put uh, – I I use Google Calendar, as a lot of people do, or people use some sort of calendar. And I will – if I, if I had that system like, okay, in three weeks I'm going to review this, I actually make a recurring uh, sort of appointment in my calendar that says review that organization thing. And then I get an email notification every three weeks, and it reminds me to do that. Um, anyway, so – the thing is, is okay, willpower is great, but unless you have a system. A, a sort of better example is I, I want to stop drinking. And you say, I don't want to drink anymore. And you say, I just need to have the willpower to stop drinking. Well, that's not going to work. We all know that. You need a system. You need to say, okay, what's the plan? I need to sit down. All right. 
I need to tell everyone that I'm not drinking anymore. I need to tell everyone not to give me a drink. I need to get rid of all my booze. I need to not go to a bar. I need to uh, occupy my time because when I get bored, I want to drink. I need to um, not go to parties that that involve drinking. I need to really tell my friends I'm not drinking anymore and to not offer me a drink anymore. I need to find activities that are fun, that don't involve drinking. Like this is a system, right? And when you create a system, for a lot of people who are trying to quit drinking, the the solution is to not rely on willpower. You know, we call that white knuckling it. Uh, for an alcoholic to rely on their willpower is to fail because the compulsion is so great. What you want is a situation where willpower never comes into play. And so when you can actually create those sort of systems in your regular life, then, then that's the thing. It's hard. It's not easy. But it's a hell of a lot easier than just trying to white-knuckle it and use your willpower. Okay, this next email is from patron Dr. Joel. Dr. Joel sent me in a article that thought I might want to... Uh, riff about. And it's an article on Science News, uh, sorry, on Science Science Daily. Uh, And it is an article called, uh, you know, basically it's an article talking about how researchers have found that more than half of empirically supported treatments uh, are actually fare poorly across um, different metrics that they're using. So basically the study looked uh, at a lot of the evidence-based treatments like dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, other kinds of things, things that are deemed to be empirically supported treatments uh, by the uh, American Psychological Association and tried to replicate their studies, previous studies, and tried to look at the studies to see, okay, um, are, is the evidence as strong as people are claiming? And what they found was that 56%, so they looked at 78 uh, empirically supported treatments, and 44 of 78, that's 56% of the empirically supported treatments fared poorly across most metric scores. In other words, when they actually looked at the research, they found that uh, the evidence wasn't very strong. Uh, They did find for 15 of the 78, 19% of the uh, empirically supported treatments, they fared strongly across most metric scores. So uh, this could be quite alarming for a lot of people because it can be like, well, we thought we had demonstrated that some therapies were helpful. And now this study is saying maybe our research wasn't as sound as or as robust or as convincing as we were hoping. So now we're at ground zero. To set, we're at you know square one again saying, okay, uh, maybe we don't know what actually helps people. And the, the thing is, is that uh, as I've talked about in other podcast episodes, trying to evaluate the effectiveness of therapy is very, very hard. Uh, one of the only ways you can really do it is to actually look at discrete conditions like depression. To to look at depression, you can say, okay, take this depression survey, and then we'll do this treatment, and we'll we'll give you another depression survey after 10 weeks, and we'll see if there's a reduction in symptoms. So... That is 
you know, sort of a simple model. In that model is still problems because some people just naturally get better. Some people get better not from the treatment that you gave them, but just by the sheer fact that they were talking to somebody. Uh, some people lie on their uh, treatment uh, on their, you know, they'll, they'll say that they're less depressed when they're actually not. So there's just a lot of uh, sort of squishiness to the research. You know, when, when someone wants to research um, the, the atomic weight of a rock, there's ways that they can do that scientifically to, to find the answer that are discrete and numerical and, um, you know, not debatable. But when it comes to psychological research and psychotherapy, psychotherapy research, it's really hard. So um, the other thing is that a lot of clients come into therapy not with a discrete problem. A lot of people, I've never seen a client come to me and say, I have this one problem and I need maybe once or twice out of thousands of clients. But the vast majority of people come in and they're talking about a, a lot of issues that they're suffering from. Uh, uh, and most of the issues I would not characterize as having anything to do with the DSM. So how do we measure in that instance, whether therapy is working? Well, one of the best ways we do it is asking the client, is this helping you? And because maybe they're more depressed, but they're actually, their relationship is better. And they will say, well, yeah, I'm a little bit more depressed now. Um, or maybe another example is, uh, they come to therapy and they have a really hard time with assertiveness. And through the therapy with me, they learn to be more assertive. And suddenly they realize through digging deep into their soul that they fell out of love with their husband 10 years ago and they don't want to be with them anymore. And they want to divorce. Well, then they get a divorce. And then you swoop in and you say, okay, um, how are you feeling now as opposed to when you first entered therapy with Dr. Honda. Well, I actually, I feel pretty bad. Um, divorce is pretty hard. My relationship is falling apart. I feel guilty to my kids. My finances are bad. Um, you know, everything, everything's going bad in my life. And then you say, okay, well, therapy with Dr. Kirk was a failure. But then you ask the client, well, did therapy work? And the client would say, oh, yes, therapy really, really worked for me. Well, I thought you said your life was worse. Well, kind of. I mean, it's sort of worse, but it's sort of better because I'm living the life I want to. But you just said that, you know, your life is falling. Yeah, well, but I'm looking at it as a success. This is a win for me because I, I now know what I want. So that's sort of a very clear, concrete, just one example I can think of off the top of my head where someone's life is actually worse and their symptoms might even be worse, but therapy worked. So how do we measure therapy is working? Well, you ask clients. And one of the easiest ways to know if therapy is working, if clients continue to come to therapy, right? Especially if you have a therapist who continually checks in or periodically checks in and makes sure that the therapy is going the way that they want to and that it's useful to them. Uh, so, so yeah, this, this article was interesting and the, the study was interesting, uh, and it's just another reason that whenever we talk about empirically supported treatments or evidence-based therapies, that we understand the landscape of the research and that we don't just say, okay, DBT is an evidence-based treatment and, and anything that isn't an evidence-based treatment, we can't use. And if you use DBT, evidence shows it will work. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, let's, let's, 
let's be careful about how we look at that. And also, let's try to be very smart about the way we tailor therapy to clients, which is my strong recommendation. Uh, John Norcross of American Psychological Association has written a lot of books and articles over the last number of decades and a lot of other people uh, demonstrating this, that it's not the model you use. It, if it's a particular issue, like if it is a phobia, you need to use CBT and, and exposure therapy. Um, if it's PTSD, you need to use CBT and exposure therapy and, and maybe sprinkle in um, other kinds of trauma therapies, maybe narrative therapy. Um, but if it is uh, the general issues that people suffer from and go to therapy for, then what you need to do is you need to know a lot. You need to know a wide variety of models of therapy well and tailor it or mix them together for that particular client. You might even change modes and models depending on the topic that the client is presenting. So uh, that is the recommendation, that it's not, it's not the model, it's the tailoring of the model to the client. Um, the analogy I always say is, uh, imagine if physicians did this, and you had some physicians that were like, well, I believe in medication, and another physician down the hall is like, well... I believe in blood infusions. And another physician down the hall says, well, I believe in surgery. And you come in and you have, and you have the flu and you just happen to get with the surgeon. And the surgeon is like, okay, you have the flu, let's, let's operate. And let's say another instance is you have a tumor that needs to be taken out and you just happen to be with the medication uh, thera- uh, physician. And that physician is like, oh, you have a tumor? Well, let's give you medication. Well, that's what my field is like right now and has been for decades. It's like... Every therapist says, well, I do Jungian, well, I do CBT, well, I'm humanistic, well, I'm dynamic, well, I do family systems. It's like, you understand that the other theories aren't stupid, right? (laughs) You understand that uh, your one theory is great, but the other theories are great too. And uh, integrating all of them and understanding all of them can make you able to tailor the therapy to the client. And so when when the client comes in, and they have a certain presentation, a certain stage of change, a certain wish for their goals or something, you can pick and choose the styles that will actually work for them. That's the recommendation. Anyway. All right. This next email is from Patron Angel. Patron Angel writes, I want to get clarification from you about this. It's my understanding that schemas are often subconsciously driven. Most people aren't really aware of their schemas until learning about them. I'm not sure if you perceive them as a conscious choice. It kind of seems like both. Perhaps it can be both. What do you think? Yeah, interesting email. If you don't know about schema therapy or the schema therapy theory, uh, listen to my deep dives on that. When you become a patron, you'll get access to those episodes. I did them recently. Yes, patron angel, uh, I agree. There are there are both subconscious and conscious. I'm not exactly sure how schema therapy people see it. I suspect they do see it as both. But yeah, I see it as both conscious and subconscious. For example, let's say someone was emotionally neglected growing up. And as a result, they develop a schema uh, you know, believing that people just don't really care about me. So they have this need for nurturance and love and attention, and they don't get enough of it for whatever reason, and they just draw this conclusion early in life. People don't really care about me. They don't really, you know, I don't know if they care about anybody. People just aren't very loving. That That's my conclusion. 
And when they're young, it's likely to be subconsciously operating. They have an ongoing sense that it's just sort of pointless to reach out to other people. You know, their schema taught them, you know, you can't depend on others, and, but it's not conscious. If you ask them, if they, um, if you ask them, like, um, do you believe that people love you? They, they just would have an answer that they would think they're supposed to answer, depending on how they are. Or they might say, no, people don't really care about me. And then you would say, well, you think that's a distortion based on the fact that you were mistreated growing up? They might say like, no, no, it's true. I I know it to be true. And anyone who doesn't understand that is naive. Um, As they get older, they start to realize that other people are much more optimistic. So in this example, let's just say as they get older, they start to realize that other people are much more optimistic about how other people care about them. And they might even encounter people that seem to really care about them. They're just like, wow, wait, I know my schema says that people don't care about me, but this person seems to really care about me and it doesn't make any sense. And they begin to wonder if they see the world in a pessimistic way. And as the the years goes by, as the years go by, Uh, this fictional person, they realize that even though some people are loving to them, they never really feel like anyone has really been there for them. And they start to wonder if they are distorted about their reality and that they are sort of creating their their negative reality, uh, maybe through therapy or something else. And with with this knowledge, they start to say, huh, I think I have some kind of pessimistic view about how much other people will love me. So at this point, the schema is becoming more conscious. Now, this doesn't mean that the schema is entirely conscious because sometimes the schema can still operate subconsciously. Negative self-talk, things like, yeah, that person doesn't really love me or, um, you know, you can't really depend on other people. Don't reach out to other people, that kind of thing. Or just avoiding relationships, behaviorally speaking, uh, even though you you might know. So some of you listeners out there are, are starting to become or have through your therapy in the past aware of your schemas. And you're just like, yeah, due to my mistreatment growing up, I have a distorted view of reality and of other people and myself. And I've known that for a long time. And yet I still operate subconsciously from that position because it's just so hard to change. You know, it's it's not a, a CBT model where you just sort of say, okay, we'll just stop thinking that way. It's something that you have to heal from through corrective experiences. Um, and then other times, so it could operate subconsciously. And then other times it might be conscious, like uh, they might feel, you know, like – uh, they get an invitation to go to a party or something or to hang out with an old friend. And they notice that they have this urge to, to avoid it. They're just like, nah, I mean, uh, why bother? Or it's just it's better to stay home. But then they're like, well, wait a second. Is that my schema kicking in and being pessimistic about what's going on here? I, I, I need to actually acknowledge the fact that I have a need for human contact and although I, all most of me is really wanting to stay home, I'm going to consciously override that and I'm going to go to that party or I'm going to hang out with that friend because even though I'm not – I don't feel it in my bones the, the way I want to stay at home, I, I, I'm consciously aware of the fact that I have this schema that taints the way that I see situations and – uh, in the end, d- denies my ability to get my needs met. Um, you know, my need for contact and human in relationships. So, 
yeah, absolutely patron angel. It can be both um, subconscious and conscious. Or is it is it patron on hell? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. All right. This next email is from Lydia from Philly, uh, out there with Emily in Philly. Lydia says, have you ever discussed the job application process and how someone can deal with the emotional stressors that come along with it? I'm a software developer, and I've been unemployed for almost three months now. It is obviously a big industry, and there are lots of jobs out there, and yet I'm having a hard time getting responses and have not gotten past the initial phone screening uh, in most cases. I I understand that on their end, there are a multitude of reasons why a company would not want to move forward with me, especially considering I've only been a software developer for three years. That said, I have pretty low self-esteem and often experience imposter syndrome. I'm a female queer person of color from an immigrant family and a low-income background. I'm basically a poster child for diversity hires in the industry, and yet I've been in situations academically and professionally where I felt completely out of place despite receiving positive feedback from peers and superiors. This makes it that this makes it more of a challenge to try to market myself to others and convince them that they would benefit from hiring me when I barely feel like it is true, even though I know I do have the skills that they would value. Being rejected regularly is very stressful for me, and as someone who already feels undeserving of attention and approval. Um, intellectually, I know this isn't true, but the feelings are still there. I'm currently working on this in therapy, and it has improved over the last few years. However, I'm not sure. However, as I'm sure you know, these things take a long time to recover from. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how people can effectively cope with the emotional experiences of applying for jobs. How does attachment insecurity affect the job application process? How can I cope with feeling demoralized and feeling like giving up? I've definitely had stretches over this summer where I've just been over-drinking and playing video games instead of applying for jobs. It's nice to feel accomplished in a video game setting when I feel like a failure in other ways. How can one deal with how much applying and interviewing for jobs sucks ass? Uh, Yeah, good email. Uh, I've been getting a few emails about this uh, lately. And uh, yeah, uh, applying for jobs sucks ass. Uh, I agree with you, patron Lydia from Philly. It's universally horrible to one's self-esteem. I've, I've, I, I'm privileged enough that in my career path, I haven't had to really apply for a job in a very long time. You could almost say that I haven't applied for a job in 27 years or something. And I've just had a lot of things either fall in my lap or I've just created, you know, this podcast I created on my own, my private practice I created on my own. So I don't, I can't really uh, resonate. I mean, I do remember what it was like applying for jobs. I mean, imagine in the early 90s, this is before the internet, and so you had to go to the, the newspaper classifieds and scour it for anything. And man, you know, it was it was pretty bad. But I was young, and I didn't really have huge expectations for my career at the, at that point. So, uh, but I have worked with a lot of people, clients, and supervisees, and students, 
as they apply for jobs. And I've just seen their self-esteem go from like a eight or nine out of 10 to a two overnight. So their cruising speed self-esteem is, you know, it's okay. But as soon as they start applying for jobs, and it's immediate, right? It's it's not like, okay, it's been 12 years of me applying for a job. I feel terrible, terrible about myself. No, it's like within three days of applying for jobs, their self-esteem is shredded. When it, the consciously they know, well, I realize that it just takes a while to find a job. And certainly after a few days, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to get a job. Or even after they start applying and they get they get turned down, they, they're like, well, intellectually, I know that I was up against like 50 other applicants and I'm not narcissistic to believe that I'm better than all those other applicants. So certainly it makes sense that, um, you know, someone else was better than me, but somehow it just feels so horrible. So just normalize it to yourself. It's it's par for the course to have your self-esteem shredded and keep talking about it with your therapist. Keep talking about it with us. Keep talking about it with your friends and try to remind yourself that it's temporary and it's irrational. It's irrational to believe that you don't have any self-worth because you're going through the very normal application process. And I think um, software developer positions are kind of that way anyway, because there's a lot of competition and um, and the jobs are can often be highly sought after if, if they pay a lot. I don't know what the sort of um, industry is like in Philly, but um, in Seattle, there's, you know, every other person is a software developer. And so uh, I've just worked closely with that kind of thing. It's, it's a, it's a, a particular sort of industry where a lot of software developers will kind of come and go it, uh, as opposed to like you're an engineer at, a, at Boeing. It's like you, you get that job for 50 years. But software developers, a lot of times it's like they get these gigs and they're really great paying gigs and then the job ends. And so anyway, it can sort of be that sort of way. And then when you get that gig, you're like, whoa, I, you know, I'm getting paid $200,000 a year. And then for a year, you're not working anyway. But but yeah, so just try to normalize it to yourself. It does suck ass for everyone. And uh, all the feelings that come along with it are uh, completely irrational. Um, aside from minor feelings of like, hmm, I wonder if I'll ever get a job. I'm a little bit worried. Um, do I have what it takes? Like a little bit of, of self-reflection in that way is fine, but 95% of it is uh, overblown. So just try to, you know, remember that consciously um, and really drill that into yourself. Having said that, it sounds like you're already doing that and uh, that isn't really working entirely. And yes, you're smart to think about attachment security and our attachment uh, injuries growing up will play a role and they'll get touched on. There's there's not a lot of situations in our adult life where we're explicitly rejected from other by other people. Divorce, being dumped, having a best friend say they don't want to be our friend anymore, and applying for jobs and not getting them. So uh, all of our injuries, we've all been injured growing up, you know, even people that were raised extremely well. You know, the, 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 the person who was raised the best on the planet still has attachment injuries from their childhood that can be triggered when they are applying for jobs and they're not um, getting a job. It it just it feels horrible. It's like that moment when you're on the playground in the third grade, 
and a bunch of kids uh, don't want to play with you. Or that moment when you're uh, 17 years old and your boyfriend walks up to you and says, uh, I don't want I don't want to be in a relationship with any with you anymore. Or that moment when you're 35 and your wife um, says to you, you know what, I've decided I want a divorce. In fact, I've wanted a divorce for the past five years. Uh, these are extremely uh, horrific moments for one's um, attachment security. And when we're applying for a job, those events get triggered because we're asking these people, will you please accept me? Am I good enough for you? And although intellectually we understand that it's just business, we are not um, we're not intellectual creatures. We are we are probably one percent intellect and ninety nine percent instinct and emotion, and so uh, it feels horrible. And um, we probably evolved. Uh, an instinct to be accepted by the tribe as well. So there's there's kind of a particular instinct that uh, is at play here. It, it makes sense that a million years ago, when we're in the African savanna and you have a child who is uh, separated from the pack, or even an individual, an adult who's like somehow gets separated from the pack, it makes sense that we evolved a mechanism where we want to run back to the herd. And we, if we're rejected by our tribe, it makes sense that we would feel terrible and we would want to rectify the situation. Emotions motivate. And when we are rejected, we feel terrible and we try to change that feeling by trying to get acceptance again. And uh, so it makes sense that we evolved a very sharp emotional feeling when we're being rejected by the tribe, Um, because to be rejected by the tribe 200,000 years ago was effectively uh, suicide, right, or or death to us. Um, So the other thing here is you mentioned you're a queer person of color from a poor immigrant family, and uh, you likely have internalized, as I'm sure you know, a lot of oppression and marginalization. There's a lot of there's just so many crappy messages in our society related to your identities, being queer, being a person of color, being from a poor background, being from an immigrant family. There are so many messages uh, that say that you are less than, that you are not worthy, that you're not really meant to be here, that you're, um, you know, the only reason why you'd be hired is because you're a diversity hire, as you said. And these are destructive messages. And although we would like to think we uh, can rise above those notions, none of us do. Till the day all of us die, all of us, regardless of our identities, will have the notion that queer people are lesser, that people of color are lesser, that poor people are lesser, and that immigrants are lesser. We cannot get away from that. And neither can you. And so now that doesn't mean we don't, that doesn't mean we give up. It means that we, we talk about it. We grieve it. We try to empower ourselves. We might engage in activism. We might get angry about it. Uh, One of my favorite things to do about marginalization and internalized oppression is to get fucking angry about it. It's fucking bullshit that queer people of color, that poor people, that immigrant people are made to feel lesser. It's fucking bullshit and it needs to fucking stop. And 
I don't care about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he is one of literally billions of people on the planet who believe this. And although he is uh, potentially propagating those kinds of thoughts, depending on how you see a situation, uh, I'm much more um, I'm much more interested in talking about um, all the other people and all the other messages and what we can do as the oppressed, because I'm a person of color too. Sometimes people like to say I'm not, which is fucking bullshit, by the way, and more more oppression. I'm I'm half Japanese, and a lot of people will say, oh, it's not really a person of color. Okay, so I'm as Asian as Barack Obama is black. Barack Obama has a white mother. I have a white mother. Uh, is Barack Obama not a person of color? Is he not black? Okay, so I'm just as much Asian as as Barack Obama is, um, and I have been called a chink. I've been call- I've been called racist epithets my entire life. I was called a chink not that long ago in Ballard in Seattle. If you're aware of Seattle, uh, you know one of the most liberal, one of the most snowflakey, you know politically correct places on the planet, I would venture to say. I'd venture to say probably the most politically correct place on the planet. And Ballard is the epicenter of that political correctness. Capitol Hill, you could argue, would uh, contend for that for that honor. And I was called a chink in Ballard, in the heart of Ballard, in the middle, broad daylight by a white woman, young white woman. And, uh, uh, you know, so... Uh, I, I was regularly made fun of growing up. And uh, anyway, so I, I'm a person of color. Uh, now, do I have it as bad as other people do? I don't know. I, I know that I, I know that other people have it real bad. Um, also, my, people in my family were literally locked up. Uh, people I knew and grew up with were literally ro- locked up by the U.S. government. I think that constitutes being op- oppressed, <laughs> you know. Uh, so anyway um, – I know what it feels like and the way that I find empowerment and although it doesn't take away the internalized oppression, um, I get angry about it and I'm like, I'm, uh, you know, fuck you. And, you know, people on YouTube will comment. They'll be like, you know, the only people who say I'm not a person of color are people on YouTube. They'll be like, oh, what a joke. You're not a person of color. Da, 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 da. And I'll just I'll just be like. Um, in my head, at the very least, I'll be like, fuck you. I, you know, I've sort of learned to just not engage, but in the past I would engage fruitlessly. But anyway, my point is, is that for you, uh, patron uh, Lydia from Philly, finding your own path on that, getting angry, getting motivated, doing something about it. Maybe it's even a part of your application process. I don't know. Maybe part of your application process is you're at the interview and you're just like, um, and I just want to point, you know, you're, you sit down and you're, and you're like, you know, screw it. If this makes it so I can't get this job, I don't know. But I'm going to say something. And you could even say, look, I'm a queer person of color and I'm from a poor background and I'm from an immigrant background. And I just have to say that I've been interviewing a lot lately and I've been turned down a lot lately. I'm not quite sure if it has anything to do with uh, oppression and marginalization, but I have to say I have my I have my questions. <laughs> and if you know if it's a bunch of rich white people interviewing you, their their eyes are going to get quite wide at that. You know I don't know the answer obviously, but um, sometimes sometimes people need to hear that shit and 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 it can feel good. And then you know if you get turned down, you'd be like, well at least I. I spread the word a little bit. I don't know. Um, (laughs) 
I don't know if that's good advice, but anyway, it's a long process. We'll, you and I, Lydia, will be at this the rest of our lives in terms of grieving the because it's continual, right? It's not like we're grieving something in the past. We're we're grieving something that's happening right now, and so you know, you just you just try to do what you can, and you try to change the meaning of it all. I mean. A queer person of color, what a glorious person you are. Uh, from a poor immigrant fa- family, what a glorious human being you are. What a what a wonderful background you have. What a rich, uh, interesting background you have. And sort of just changing those meanings can also help with um, the uh, changing of the narrative for yourself and the, how you you know sort of live your life. The other thing is is you know I hear a little bit of guilt in your. Uh, words about playing video games, allow yourself to play video games. I mean, what else are you going to do? You're unemployed. (laughs) Enjoy your time off. Uh, That's what I tell a lot of people when they're unemployed. It's like, look, for the rest of your your life, you're likely to be working a lot. And you'll look back at this time and you'll think, why was I worried so much? And you'll also look back on the time and go like, I kind of wasted all that time by worrying. I should have just enjoyed myself like a like a vacation. <laughs> so enjoy yourself. You're not working. You'll be working eventually. You have the skills. Um, you, it'll be fine. But it's just a matter of finding that that, that right fit. Um, but uh, allow yourself to play your video games. And yeah, a sense of accomplishment is is fine. Uh, you recognize that you're aware of it, and you're not going to let it sort of become the only way you want to get accomplishment. And we have that need. That's another thing that um, I want to point out is that even just being unemployed. So let's just say someone um, decides to quit their job and they have enough money in the bank and they're just like, you know what, I'm going to take a year off. Uh, almost all the time, people will suffer from a particular syndrome uh, that I think you're suffering from as well, which is basically we have a need for accomplishment and for productivity, which makes sense, right? Going back again to the African savanna 200,000 years ago, you have two tribes. One tribe uh, is uh, they don't really care about uh, production. They, 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 they consciously want to get gather food and resources. Um, but when they're not producing food and resources, say like it's the off season, uh, they don't feel terrible about themselves. Well, uh, the tribe next door they also consciously want to get resources and gather food and um, you know hunt animals, but when there's downtime, they actually feel depressed. There's actually a an, an emotion that kicks in that motivates them away from non productivity. So it's likely we retained that instinct of productivity. And even though there are times when people are making a choice, like retirement, for example to not work anymore because that's the whole that's the whole goal in life right is to not work right that's that's what our culture tells us well that's actually counter to our natural state we evolved to have a quite negative emotional reaction when we're not being productive in in terms of how we perceive being productive and so there, there's it's likely that while you're not working um, you're having that that feeling of just like I'm I'm not uh, I'm not earning money. And so another thing to do that you can uh, sort of counter at least that component of your malaise is to just get a job in any old job, even if it's just working at the Seven Eleven or volunteering. Uh, there's a sense of accomplishment through those activities that you're getting from video games, but you could also get in other ways that actually meets that need. That is, is very core to our human existence. Um, so... 
Uh, I'm glad you're in therapy. Obviously, stay in therapy. The other thing is, is maybe find other people to commiserate with, other people who are trying to find a job, because uh, that can normalize things quite a bit. Um, and also, you know, you're talking about it's hard to accept help from other people. And and I, I hear it in your words that you feel like you should be able to accept help from other people. And maybe that's part of your healing. And maybe the universe is trying to tell you something. Maybe the universe is trying to tell you that it's time to let go of that pathological independence and actually ask for and accept help from other people. Maybe that's what this chapter in your life is all about, is to um, the humility and the trust and the acceptance of love from other people that they have to give, that they want to help you, that you're not alone, and that um, you do deserve to ask for help and you do deserve help. As a queer person of color, poor immigrant family background, you've probably uh, tried to live life independently. You've tried to do things on your own. Uh, and it's uh, worked for you um, for the most part. But it probably has a downside. And allowing yourself that flexibility and allowing yourself that grace um, can be one of the most wonderful things you can do for yourself. It's also a gift you give to other people. This is something I often tell pathologically independent people is, you know, by accepting help, you're not just giving a gift to yourself. You're absolutely giving a gift to other people. Other people love to help other people. Other people, people in your life, Lydia, who care about you, they want to help you. I just got a text from a past student, Gwen, who I think listens to the podcast. She was you know she was just um asking about this prof- this professional thing i haven't seen her in a long time and she i just asked her how things were going and she said uh she just kind of gave me a little update on her career and i instantly uh I, it sounded like sh- there was a little bit of her career that she wasn't liking and so i instantly emailed back and i or texted back and i said is there anything can, i can do to help with your career, you know, I'd love to help. And I wasn't, you know, just being courteous. I, I was actually like hopeful that I could help her. That's, that's my needs. Now, obviously I'm trying to help her and I feel like, you know, because of the privilege I have and the position I have in my career, I, I want to spread that around. But I get tremendous gratification from helping other people. It really makes my day. <laughs> I mean, there are times, I suppose, when I have low self-esteem and I will think about the people that I've helped and I'm in better spirits because of that memory. And that's a gift that I give myself or that other people give me by letting me help them. You know, another sort of uh, experience that I like to point out that relates to this is when I used to live downtown Seattle um, a few years ago, you know, for a number of years, and I would be walking around downtown Seattle a lot as I'm going to the store or I'm going to the university, which is right across the street. And I was in a section, I was right, I was right near the Space Needle, which is kind of, you know, it's like everyone knows the Space Needle in Seattle. It's like, yep, I lived like two blocks from the Space Needle, <laughs> which is, um, you know, just kind of silly. But I was, I would run into a lot of tourists naturally because there are a lot of tourists um, because the Space Needle is obviously tourists hang around the Space Needle, a lot of tourists. And there's a lot of other touristy things around the Space Needle. Anyway, so inevitably I would see people lost 
or they would walk up to me and ask me how to get somewhere. And I loved helping them find what they were looking for. I loved it. It made my day. I would stop. I would have a conversation. I would talk with them for five minutes. How are you enjoying Seattle? Where do you want to go? Why do you want to go there? Let me help you out with that, you know? Because I've lived in Seattle my whole life. I know I know it like the back of my hand. I've been to all the tourist spots multiple times. I know how – I was even thinking about, along these lines, the gift of giving. I frequently get requests from people saying, you know, I'm, I'm traveling to Seattle. Any advice on where I should go? And I've actually started working on a guide for – um, uh, what to do in Seattle because there's a lot of guides online that I think are they're okay, but I, I don't. I think they give a lot of really bad advice. Like if you just Google things to do in Seattle, ninety percent of what comes up is like things I would never recommend people do. Plus, it's hard to put it into context, right? Like you see this thing. Because I've experienced from the other side, like um, I'm going to uh, Mardi Gras actually <laughs> in New Orleans. And I was Googling New Orleans, like things to do. And it's just like in your head, you're like, okay, the Google is telling me this, but is it really something that I should spend my time on? How, how many tourists are there? Is it within walking distance? How is the parking? Like sort of the reality of it, right? Because a lot of times you do these things and you just think, uh, well, that sounds great. And then you get there and you're like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like one of the, th- <laughs> just while I'm on this riff, um, I was in Paris two years ago, three years ago, and I was doing all the touristy things, and I, I didn't really have a very good context for anything. And uh, two things kind of stick out along these lines. One is is obviously the um, uh, Notre Dame, the cathedral. I didn't really want to go there because I was looking online, and I saw these really long lines, these just foot, you know, people standing in lines trying to get in. And I hate being in line. So I was just like, eh, I'm not going to go there. But we were walking by there, me and Stacy, and I was just like, oh, the line looks small. And so we went in, and I was like, well, this is really cool. And then it burned down not too long after, so I'm kind of glad that I saw it before that. But So that was something that, it, you know, it's just hard to know unless you are there or you know someone who can really tell you. The other thing I did was to go to Versailles, the palace or I don't know what you call it, but it's this, um, if you're familiar, um, you know, but if you're not, uh, this it's out of, it's outside of Paris. It takes a while to get there. And it's this, it's this grand old, you know, palace that is just amazing, uh, on the inside, on the outside. It, it, it really brings you back to the royalty of Europe 400 years ago or whenever it was built. And, it looked awesome, um, and it we did it. It takes a whole day kind of trip. It's and there's a lot of walking. There's just like a shit ton of of walking. And when we were there, I was like, "Get me out of here!" Because the crowds were just insane. I mean, you're walking around in Versailles, and it, there's all this beautiful architecture and paintings and accoutrement, if you will, and but just pushing and shoving and and breathing and it was it was uh, you know imagine you know you're in this beautiful room and you're in there with like 500 other people and everyone's yapping at each other and everyone's trying to get the get a picture and you know it just was not good uh it was similar going to the louvre and going to the mona lisa it was just like this madhouse and i just i just i don't know like 
I, I get why it is a madhouse, but it's just not my scene. I'd rather hang out with things that aren't like that. And so going back, I would not have gone to Versailles. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm glad I did because I guess one needs to see it because there's really nothing else like it. Um, maybe Vienna has something like it or Russia has something like it. But anyway, um, but if I was to recommend it to someone, I would be like, look, it's great, but realize it's a whole day of your trip and it is super crowded and lower your expectations. And here are five other things that are probably more worth your time um, and money. Uh, it's the same with Seattle. So there's a lot of things on the Seattle recommendations. So bringing it all back <laughs> to Lydia from Philly is allow people to give to you. You are giving them a gift. Uh, people love to give. And um, so maybe the universe is telling you that it's time to give that gift of allowing them to give that gift to you. All right. Well, that does it for that email episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. If you have any thoughts, email me by going to the website and filling out the Contact Us page. That's the best way to contact me. And a lot of you have been doing that, which is really great. Um, it's It asks all the right questions, and it's, it's really the best way. Uh, don't comment on the – if you really want to comment on the podcast below, wherever you can comment, that's great. Uh, for other people to read, I suppose, but it's not a good place to contact me. The best place is go to the website, contact us page. I'm pulling out my little cheat sheet of other things you can do. Um, obviously, become a patron of the podcast. Join us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we're starting to post a lot of things there, and we play a tougher bluff game on Tuesday on Facebook, which a lot of people participate in, and it's fun. I like to uh, share research with the listeners that way. So you can participate in the tougher bluff, or you can at least you know follow it. Um, also on Facebook, I like to post a lot of questions, like I'm I'm prepping for this episode. Any thoughts? And so uh, you can you can do that on Facebook. Um, uh, also join us on Thursdays at two o'clock Seattle time on YouTube Live. It's either just me or me and Umberto, and we will answer your questions and talk with you there. Uh, if you want to access the archive, our website is the best bet. I get a lot of emails from people saying, like, how do I access this episode? And then I ask, well, how, are you, how do you listen to the podcast? And they're like, well, I listen on Patreon. Patreon is not the best place to listen to the podcast. It's, it's fine if you want to listen to the most recent episode, but it's not fine if you want to look for an older episode. And the best way to do that is to go to the website. And I realize it's not the most convenient way. And by the way, I keep talking about this, but there's – there's some apps that are coming out that might make the whole premium access and the archive access a lot easier. It's like um, software developers are finally realizing that podcasting is a thing that they can make money off of. And, uh, you know, it, it, so there's products coming out that might actually um, work. Uh, so I fingers crossed on that. Um, also, if, if you love the podcast and you've, and you've been a patron f you know, for a little bit and you can afford to go to a higher tier, uh, that would be great. Um, you know, the, the, I want to have the sort of distribution <laughs> of people who can afford just different tiers, if that makes any sense. And remember that when you go up tiers, you get, you get different kinds of um, swag. For example, at the $25 uh, dollar level, 
you get a mug, which I'm actually using right now. It's it's great. It's a great Psychology in Seattle mug. Um, also, buy my book called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, particularly if you're interested in supervision. Also, uh, that is that. Okay, so please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do.